Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. joined today by Dean Piedmont, who's a Senior Advisor for Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration and Security Sector Reform at Creative Associates. Disarmament, Demobilization, Reintegration is also known as DDR. And at Creative, Dean works on determining modalities for engagement in crisis and post-crisis settings where lingering threats of armed actors and insurgent groups are present. Dean recently participated in a public event we hosted here on July 23rd. Please check out our webpage to watch the video of that event. Dean, thanks for for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, Dan. So what is DDR? DDR, as you said, Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration. And it's really a, a practice area that deals with armed groups, more often than not non-state armed actors. The practice itself has been around uh, since the dawn of military affairs. You can track it down well over two centuries. However, it gained popularity uh, in the United States international community around the mid-1980s. And oh. since that time, it, become, it became very prolific. Um, up until about 10 years ago, there were over 60 uh, programs and operations that had occurred. And it's very much seen a changing face since 2015, since this advent of what we call Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE. So how did you get into this business? Accidentally. I had a bit of a talking heads moment. You know, how did you get here now? Uh, I had first started this in 2002 in Sierra Leone, working for the International Rescue Committee, working with child soldiers. Uh, at this point, there was no global policy guidance that existed. So organizations looked for ancillary expertise. I had uh, been a tradesman for years, so there was the vocational training. I had done youth counseling for years, so there was that, working with uh, youth, and I was an educator. What kind of tradesman were you? I'm a certified journeyman uh, in plasterer, taping, and sheetrocking. I did that for 15 years. Were you a union member? A union guy, yeah. Where, where in New York? Or? In New York, yeah. I had a union card in New York State. I worked at a grocery store, so to work in a grocery store in New York State at the time, you had to be a union member, so I... As a kid, I had a union card. I graduated, I remember the day I graduated high school, asked my father for $300 to go to Philadelphia for a weekend concert. He said, yeah, I'll give you the $300. See me tomorrow. He handed me a tool belt and well, that was my entry into the union. Well. <laughs> I missed the concert. <laughs> so you had these different experiences. So when you saw DDR, it sort of fit your background, kind of your, your interesting background. Uh, it was that and part of it was simply playing the market. Ironically enough, if we look at Afghanistan, if we look at what's going to happen, it's going to be about a market-driven DDR. The war in Sierra Leone had ended. A lot of money was going there. I was finishing graduate school. Uh, so I did a bit of the math and thought that that would be a great place for me to enter my career. Didn't realize it would be DDR. It ended up being DDR very quickly. I saw uh, the need for policy and policy guidance and just stuck with this field. What is market-driven DDR? What does that mean? I guess you have to look at it in several ways. DDR, when it became prolific around the early yeah, 2000s, yeah. was simply every peace agreement that was signed, 
there was a need to uh, run through a DDR for the belligerent actor, the non-state armed group. DDR then and today is the only or the best known proximate uh, policy instrument to uh, actually disarm and engage armed groups. So uh, it was simply uh, an area that was growing inside of our industry, international recovery yeah. and development. In many peace support operations, I had done a decade with the UN, a preponderance of money outside of the humanitarian sector was dedicated to DDR, largely because uh, while ex-soldiers don't represent a large uh, need in terms of the caseload, they represent a disproportionate risk to peace and security, so a disproportionate amount of funds is allocated. I've come across this in a couple instances. In the case of Colombia, mm -hmm. you had several hundred thousand or more, probably even millions of internally displaced people, people from one part of Colombia who'd moved to another. You had a significant unemployment rate and you had many, many business leaders or business people who owned businesses who'd had family members that have been impacted by the by guerrilla yeah. movements like the FARC and the ELN. So there was as part of the peace agreement, they said, well, we're going to help you do something other than being a soldier mm -hmm. in Colombia. So they went to the Colombian private sector and said, hey, we've got these young people who or not so young people who've been soldiers on the other side for one, two, five, 10, 20 years. And now they want to reintegrate into society. So can you hire some of these people? And the answer was, no, I don't really want that. It was sort of, it was almost like biblical with the prodigal son. Like there was mm -hmm. sort of this reaction, sort of this biblical reaction. Instead, they said, well, what we'll do is we'll offer to, if they want to start their own cooperatives, their own business, I might buy from them as like supply chains, but I'm very reluctant to hire them in either because I see them as a risk for my company or because I have a personal beef with the group because they kidnapped my brother or they killed my cousin yeah. or this kind of a thing. Is that a common experience? All of the above is a common experience. And Dan, this gets into when I, when might have been before we were on air, this notion of what are modalities of yeah. DDR. One of the difficulties we see in DDR is that they became so prolific that more and more DDRs became governed by policy guidance as opposed to analytics. A lot of what we're doing uh, in creative by publishing is getting back to the analytics. So uh, in part, we can say part of this is a political process. If we look at the US government's stabilization policy, the SAR, stabilization is inherently political. We view DDR as inherently political. Part of it is a program uh, response. Part of it is an operational response. So one would ask the question, if you're asking companies to put in former fighters, um, what is the conflict uh, context? In Mozambique and the early DDRs, these were largely liberation fighters, or certainly the framing became such. Yeah. Therefore, uh, as heroes, it could be an advantage to the private sector or a disadvantage to leave them out. In other cases, the goal uh, would be disbandment. The Revolutionary United Front and the Lord's Resistance Army, those members will probably never enter into the private sector. These are people in Uganda? In Uganda. They were in Sierra Leone. Right. In other areas, we'd probably look in Afghanistan, there may be an advantage to keeping the group in a certain degree of social cohesion. and cohesion. They may be very advantageous for certain segments of the private sector to have cohesive groups 
that are mobilized around non-violent private sector means. So I can remember when I was at AID in the early 2000s, at the end of the Angola Civil War, AID funded a survey of mm -hmm. combatants saying, what do you want to do? And what they said, what, when the, the, the survey results came back and something like 75% of the combatants said, I want to go back to my village and start farming. Mm -hmm. So how, how common is that if people just say, I just want to go back to my village and farm? We saw it, especially in, in areas of Southern Africa, it was very common. The statistics in Mozambique were 98%. Oh. This indicated to us, and Creative had worked on those programs. Uh, we're actually doing a comparative analysis of those early Southern African cases with uh, Latin American cases to see how they fit with uh, Afghanistan. So have some of these, some of these have worked, right? Depends on how we define a worked. successful DDR. There are, if we follow theories, uh, DDR theory, there's two modalities for success. One is that everyone is a victim of war. Ex-combatants like anyone else are deserving of dignity and reintegration and those economic opportunities. Another is much more security driven. The goal of DDR is to remove the ex-combatant from the security equation until such time. The difficulty in DDR is until such time. What you're talking about is expectation management. Part of what DDR practitioners have never done wisely is attach or uh, manage expectations. When does DDR start and when and how does it end? When does it transition? DDR is not economic development. Economic development may be a necessary variable to success in certain contexts. I'd argue that Afghanistan is one of those contexts, that market-based jobs development is uh, a precondition for DDR success, but DDR cannot create those conditions. So let's move to, you've written a couple reports, I think, specifically on Afghanistan Correct. and DDR. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the two reports and what were some of the big takeaways from those two reports, given all your expertise on this. One of the reports is uh, not about Afghanistan. It's a pre-positioning report. Okay. What it does is most of guidance, policy guidance on DDR is governed from uh, the United Nations. Really? Yes. Okay. Integrated DDR standards. And who, who's sort of the referee for DDR? Is it is there some UN agency that does this? Is it, would, it OCHA or? No, there's no agency. There's um, an interagency working group. On DDR? On DDR that's composed of, I think it may be upwards of 22 UN and non-UN entities. And is there like a secretariat for this? Uh, like a secretariat coordinator, very small group. It's, uh, it runs uh, variable. It's been around for years. It tends to be more and less robust at different times. It had developed the original set of guidance. However, what we decided to do with Creative was recognize that there is a growing reemergent trend for DDR, however this is uh, being defined, and that the U.S. government has taken an increased interest. Part of its national yeah. security interests. Could be Colombia, it's Afghanistan, could be other places. We're going to see it across the Sahel. Right. We're going to see it across the Lake Chad Basin. Yep. And it would be very difficult to imagine uh, settling conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa without having some reconfiguration of DDR. Okay. So Creative said, let's reconfigure DDR relevant for U.S. government interests. To do so, we took DDR and retrofitted into the Stabilization Assistance Review, U.S. government stabilization policy. Yeah. We did this by breaking it down into three pillars, the 3D pillar, defense, diplomacy, and development. We asked the question, is it fit for purpose? The answer came back yes, 
and then we figured out where in these three pillars it can be operationalized so that it could be used by USAID, by DOD, and state. Uh, by state. So, Dean, you've been to all, it sounds like you've spent a lot of your career in some of the world's garden spots. Now, there have been other terms used for these garden spots. Correct. But you've written a second report on Afghanistan. So, mm -hmm. why don't you first give me kind of the overlay of like, you've been probably been to Afghanistan a number of times. Correct. And you've looked at the Afghanistan context through the lens of DDR. Mm -hmm. So, if you had no budget constraints, no political will problems, how would you do DDR right what needs to go right for DDR to happen in Afghanistan, and what are the things that need to happen to kind of make that happen? I would be careful about labeling it DDR. We just don't have uh, another uh, term. So part of DDR without a budget would be how much of this is about the normalization of relations between the Taliban uh, and the government, and how can we unpack the DDR toolkit to do so? And have that we've had other contexts where there's something rhymes with Afghanistan. I'd look like at normalization of relations. Absolutely. The difficulty in DDR is when myself or creative associates is asked, give us other case studies, country case studies of best practices. It can't be done because it's an engineering project. We can tell you in certain countries under certain conditions what aspects would work what aspects did work, but the, the unit of analysis should not be the country. In Afghanistan, since 2001, there were four, arguably five DDRs that were attempted. All of them had subpar results and all of them tactical and some strategic successes. But you need to know where to look and how to disaggregate those. That's the purpose in part of the Taliban reintegration report we did, to take a look at those four cases, take a look at the SAR, and identify uh, entry points and leverage points. To your question, what I would do without a budget, I would look at DDR as a political process, not a program or an operation. I would very seriously consider um, how this fits into security sector reform. When you I, say security sector reform, that means army and police, right? Army and police. Uh, In terms of like, who joins the army, who joins the police. Correct. Right. And so you might take some former Taliban combatants or whatever we want to call them, mm -hmm. and they might join the security forces or they might join some local gendarmerie or they might mm -hmm. join a local police force, right? Correct. Uh, we'd have to ask and answer the question, at what level do we and for how long do units remain cohesive? Right. So if I, we were a group, a village group of fighters, we just say you're now the policeman in your district and give you uniforms kind of a thing? Well, and train you and make sure you're yeah. under the rule of law right. and civil guidance. Read, read the Miranda rights and that kind of a thing when, they, when, you, when you pull somebody over for speeding. And understand how the U.S. government can and cannot engage. I get the sense you have to consider a number of issues, especially around things like human rights when you do this sort of work. You do, and it's become much more uh, center in DDR, especially as we position it inside of uh, the SAR, inside of U.S. Uh, policy. One example, and it relates directly to Nigeria, is uh, the recognition that we have to adhere to Leahy vetting. What is Leahy vetting? Leahy vetting uh, limits and uh, basically governs the type of assistance the U.S. government can provide to foreign militaries, foreign armed forces, based on their compliance with human rights standards. We didn't use these in old DDRs that were governed by the UN. They were governed by a peace agreement with the a priori assumption that all persons 
with the exception of those that uh, transgressed uh, or recognized war criminals or something. Precisely. They, they were governed by international customary law. This is something very precisely that we do and should be paying attention to. So the concern has been, are we providing military aid or foreign assist, economic foreign assistance mm -hmm. to armed groups that are violating other people's human rights? That's, exactly. That's been the question. Mm -hmm. And how can we assist foreign governments? Right. So, okay. So, so mm -hmm. let's say in the case of the Taliban, let's assume this is not the Vienna Boys Choir yes. of, sort mm -hmm. of, of combatants. How are we going to get around the Leahy if, if let's assume that they've probably violated a whole bunch of mm -hmm. human rights kind of like on a daily basis yeah. of a whole lot of people. And then we're supposed to use American foreign aid to kind of train these people up and give them uniforms and police cars and maybe even firearms. How are we going to get around the Leahy issues? We don't get around it. We comply. In compliance, we can talk to our partners about what it would take for them to come into alignment. We understand that one of the advantages we have by realigning DDR inside the SAR uh, and having it being aligned with uh, CVE, Countering Violent Extremism yeah. Initiatives, is that we have to ask what has changed. Part of what has changed is DDRs were once governed by comprehensive peace agreements. This mandated that DDRs had to be done countrywide. Right. That is a constraint. So in the case of Afghanistan, we might say we're just going to do it in province X as opposed to whole, all 26 provinces or whatever it is in Afghanistan. And then we can say why, under what conditions, and use that as a carrot and incentive to draw in other armed groups. So, so it's sort of like with the FARC and ELN where you had subgroups kind of disarm and participate, but they, there wasn't an entire disarmament. Now, this is interesting because the FARC and ELN are different insofar as they are designated terrorist organizations, the Taliban is not. So this means the United States- uh, Could work with the Taliban more easily than working with the FARC. And that bit of information is precisely why DDR becomes a political process and positioning it inside of the SAR uh, enables us to provide policy support to the U.S. government. So, okay, so let's, you've, you've been, like I said, you've been in a lot of the world's garden spots, mm -hmm. working on these horrible, awful, but really important issues for 20 years. Are the Taliban tired of fighting? I mean, I don't know. You have to say, if they're tired of fighting, may not have any relation to their will to continue fighting. So I'd be very careful about I'm that. Using that term. Certainly, the Taliban are in an advantageous position uh, in terms of where they are now. Um, they've been routed. They've experienced a resurgence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of what needs to occur inside of a DDR, if we look at how we define DDR, that's why I'm using the term normalization of relations. That's why it's a political process, because we can talk about political reintegration. That's why we can talk about where the Taliban will never be elevated to a, a liberation struggle or a, a veterans association. Uh, however, there may need to be uh, specialized programs, pro-Taliban, pro-government policies that encourage them to come within the, uh, the civilian fold. And this is all part of the analytics that would defy uh, the common, uh, common parlance of uh, policy. So you talk about in your report about using experiences from the Philippines, Kosovo, and Nigeria. Could you talk a little bit about each of those and how they reply to the Afghan context? I think what I found interesting about the Philippines, it comes from a few years ago, was using, we have Islamic context, which right. I believe uh, is important. It was the term DDR, 
Uh, there was a stigma behind the very term itself. Because it means like you're defeated? Correct. The Taliban and Afghans have a long recent history and knowledge of DDR. Being able to look at the political elements, normalization of relations, how it fits into governance and rule of law issues would be very advantageous. In Kosovo, you had a DDR more recently with the Civil Protection Corps where we were not looking to disband the group. We were not looking to disarm the group. It was not- You're going to become cops. They're going to- uh, Border guards. All, all things being equal, they're going to go into- uh, yeah, Gendarmerie. Precisely. You also referenced the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Mm -hmm. Why do you reference that? Tell me about the IRA and how did they apply to the Afghanistan case? I think when we look forward in Afghanistan and we talk about managing expectations, what DDR can and cannot do, um, oftentimes DDR is, there's this kind of uh, this knee-jerk reaction, DDR doesn't succeed. Well, so it succeeded with the IRA. And we don't readily recognize that- That's the case study. That's one of the case studies of success is the IRA. What I like about it is it's close to home. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's accessible. And it's European. It, it makes the practice- It's not as exotic, if I can put it that way. And it's very commonplace. Yeah, yeah. I'm three quarters um, Irish, so like I get it. Precisely. Right. Uh. I think it also speaks to uh, some of the preferred conditions under certain cases. One of them is that you had economic development. You had a market-driven economy. Yeah, yeah. You had infrastructure. If we're talking about uh, another attempt with uh, the Taliban or any attempt in Afghanistan, because we haven't talked about the other armed groups, we need to start talking about... Uh, doing so within the context of economic development, not within the framework of a dependency on humanitarian or foreign aid. Right. I always thought the best social program was a job. Yes. it's. Uh, I'd be careful about that being a primary driver. No, but... In Afghanistan, I'd imagine political uh, reintegration, security sector reform, public sector and private sector reintegration. Taliban are going to need the means uh, to production. And for the rank and file, having sustainable, durable employment, and perhaps access to land in rural areas, I'd look at land uh, tenure and uh, distribution issues, would go a long way to achieving successful DDR, precisely what happened, uh, what didn't happen in previous experiences. So there have been several attempts in Afghanistan to do this. Correct. Tell me about those. 2004 to 2006, we had the Afghan New Beginnings Program, a traditional DDR of 63,000 people, mostly men, who were part of the Coalition of the Willing. They came together in an interim stabilization measure, a series of armed groups that were pulled together under a single command and control, and then went through a traditional DDR process. Um, we had the Commander Incentive Program, I think between six and 800 mid to senior level commanders who were provided with specialized packages and what we might want to call political accommodation if they wanted to run for office or something, or they that, want, that could be part of it. Or we could we could appoint you as a le member of the legislature for one term, and then if you want to run afterwards, that kind of a thing. There was a lot of that going on as well. This was more: how do we uh, get accommodations for senior commanders? How do we remove them from the security equation? We had the disbandment of illegally armed groups, the recognition that there were twelve hundred at least other armed groups that were not being addressed. Still an issue we find in Afghanistan today. And the Afghan Peace and Reintegration Program, which was the first political reintegration program recognizing anti-government elements, the Taliban, as constituent members of Afghans of polity that were in need of reintegration. Taken together, 
what we're going to see in the future are elements of all four of those coming into play for a future DDR program. So you have to treat the foot soldier different than the commander, generally. Yes, you do, generally speaking. Do you think that you could imagine, if, if there is some kind of a peace agreement, this is going to be part of any kind of peace agreement in your mind? I'd be careful about using the term DDR. I always... What would you call it instead? I would let the Afghans let us know what to call it. I'd let the analysis determine uh, the acronym. It will be around this universe. It'll, it'll of, walk and quack like this, mm -hmm. but we're not going to call it that. Or, or we may. It'll be a toolbox we open with a lot of DDR tools in it that will make a lot of sense in advancing a peace process. Dean, this is great. Thank you for doing this. I think there's a lot more we could and should be doing on DDR. My view of the world is there's two kind of developing countries. There's sort of this 80 or 90 countries that are going to become rich middle-income countries mm -hmm. and are going to make it. And then there's sort of the 30 or so complicated countries that we're going to be stuck with for decades. And I think these sorts of issues are going to be a part and parcel of everyday conversation in those 30 countries. Thank you for the invite. Uh, I tend to uh, agree with you. And part of the question is, how can DDR help to leverage this? How can it aid in economic development? Dean, this is great. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 